Hey everyone, so we just got done talking to Mike Pannone. He's a very interesting individual, extremely knowledgeable. He's got to start with Marine Corps Force Recon or Marine Corps Recon. After serving in recon, he's he switched over to Army Special Forces. After that, he went over to Delta Force. He owns his own company now, CTT Solutions. He is a person who isn't just satisfied teaching what he knows now. He is constantly seeking instruction from others and is always trying to learn something new. He's very animated. He's very opinionated. And in my opinion, he's very justified given the length of time he has spent in this industry, whether it was the military or the firearms industry as a whole. Frank, what do you think? Yeah, you hit it on the head, Matt. I, I think it's rare to find someone who's such a dedicated student like he is. And yet, you know, when he learns something, he he has some very, he, he's very uh, aggressive about some of his opinions, but that also made for a really good episode. Um, his his uh, his personality really jumps out at you. Um, there are parts of this episode that are absolute riot, and there are some really insightful parts of the episode too. I'm really glad we got the opportunity to talk to him, pick his brain. Yeah, it was fun. I really like him. Hopefully one of these days I can jump in into class with him because, you know, it's not many, it's not often you could, you get to speak uh, or get instructed by somebody who is, who, who's a preacher of his own craft. craft. So everyone, I hope you really enjoy it. Enjoy this. Let us know what you think. And, uh, We'll keep them rolling out. Give me a nod when you're ready. Shooter's ready. Stand by. everyone welcome to the 3giq podcast i'm joined here with my co-host frank gal and our special guest mike pannone now mike pannone he is known in the recon community when he first started in the military uh after he left recon he went to army special forces and then he finished his career out with delta force uh he is now he now owns his own company ctt solutions and he is well known within the tactical realm of teaching both uh tactical marksmanship and competition marksmanship. Uh, he's well regarded. He's one of those individuals who is humble enough to go and get outside uh, instruction and still, you know, be relevant within the game. So Mike, if you could, please go ahead and introduce and introduce hey. yourself and tell us about yourself. Thanks, man. Uh, Mike Benone. Yeah, I started out in the reconnaissance community, spent six years, my first six years in the Corps. I went straight out of, out of infantry school to reconnaissance course and then went right to it so I, I i was straight recon baby all the way through for six years in the corps then went over to sf and then from sf went to the unit um went to delta um i ate a breaching charge so this one's made out of lexan um i medically retired and then i started going overseas in 03 i helped stand up the air marshal program first in 02 and then i started going overseas 0304 05 doing 
high-risk contracting, um, culminating at the end, I was a ground combat advisor to the Corps again, which is really interesting because I was wearing digis, carrying a rifle, doing the business with the Corps again, which is where I started um, in 05 in Anbar. So uh, yeah, was, that, that's that side of my career. And then I helped a couple guys, like I helped Viking Tactics stand up their business. I was his first house for senior instructor and then opened up my own. And ever since then, since 2009, I've been doing my thing. So Gail was dad too. That's my big job. Hell yeah. So um, obviously we've kind of already went over that you've been recon SF and Delta. So whenever you first came in, what was marksmanship training like throughout your time in the military and near the end, and also near the end of your career, what did you ever see a shift to competitive shooting, practical shooting and improving the skills of yourself and those you worked with? Yeah, absolutely. It started out the typical, you know, going to Paris Island and then going to the infantry course. And then um, that was all snapping in. That was all precision based. What I, what I know now and looking at hindsight is that there was no emphasis whatsoever put on speed and there was no emphasis whatsoever put on weapons handling. Okay. None reloads, none like that, run in your gun. Um, so that was that, that was the legacy stuff that was bullseye. That was the traditional Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine. It was in three, five in Korea. Like it, it, it traditional Marine Corps, Rifle range marksmanship was our thing. We're known for that worldwide. Everybody knows Marines can fucking shoot. Um, now the, the applicability of it is where it started to suffer. When I went to the reconnaissance community, we had shooting packages. We had the, a more um, action-based time when the Maritime Special for Purpose Force came up and started doing BBSS and that kind of stuff. That changed it. And then force started really pushing the shooting packages. And then that translated into battalion. So that I started to see a, you know, a, a change, but that was intra Marine Corps. And that was a specialized unit within the, the infantry component, which reconnaissance at the time still was part of. And then when I went over to SF, it still was, it, it, it was very baseline. There wasn't really a very good marksmanship training in regular SF in the, the SIF, the commanders and extremist force, they had the CQB related or the, the, the direct action type of marksmanship. Um, that began to change in the nineties. That's when you really started to see an increase in the marksmanship side. When I went to the unit in 97, um, we had we had pro shooters. We had Rob Latham, Jerry Barnhart, Frank Garcia. We had all these guys come in, and there was an emphasis on that style of practical shooting, on balance of speed and accuracy, because it was directly applicable to the job. So you really saw the change. I saw the change, personally, coming from being in two different services and being in, effectively, three special units. I saw it change in the 90s. It was relatively distinct, to the point where I could take my pistol and my, my rifle, and I could shoot matches my actual issued rifle from the unit. I could take it and I could box it up and I go shoot matches wherever. I just had to bring back, you know, a, a leaderboard saying, Hey, I competed. Here's my score, all that. They supported that because they understood how important it was. And, and that was manifest in their willingness to bring in, you know, competition shooters, professional competition shooters, every, you know, every Aztec cycle we had. So it's, that was to me, that's when I saw the big change and it has gone exponentially better over there. I know at the unit, it's gone way way into that performance shooting, bringing in the best performance shooters in the world. And it's, it's, it's been a huge benefit. I see the guys now that come out of there, they can bang, they can shoot. And it's, it's because the focus is go as fast as you can go. Specified level of accuracy that we want as fast as you can humanly go. Yeah, it's good to hear. It's good to hear that the special force community is really taking the lessons for practical shooting. But um, I would like to shift the lens to large military, mm -hmm. like big Marine Corps, big army. Yep. Okay. So that's full of, 
I would say risk averse power brokers and decision makers mm-hmm. might look at practical shooting. And Matt, the first time I met Matt, we were dealing with this. We were dealing yep. with a gunner who did not like practical shooting and didn't want it on his range and continually messed with the way that Mick McEast was being run. So um, what is the best way to sell practical shooting to those people in your eyes? Okay. It's, it's, that's a good, that's a good, um, I've got a good example of that when I came back from Iraq in 05 with the asymmetric warfare group, I was on a, a rifle course with the 82nd. I think we spent 38 weeks out of 52 at the 82nd training everybody for the, for the surge, like surge in 07, 08. And, um, it was all former unit guys. And we, we brought basically practical shooting to them. We had 40 paratroopers every week for 38 weeks. And the, the way that we, the way that we demonstrate, because there were a lot of people in the army, the army, you know, I mean, I'm partial, obviously, to the core, but when it comes to the, to the infantry side, they're relatively close. The 82nd and, and regular reunions are, are very comparable, you know? Um, and so what we did is we put them out there and we showed them what they could do. We, we had, a, a, you know, some standardized uh, drills and stuff they shot at the beginning. And then at the end of the week, they come out and watch them shoot. And they were, they were stunned at how well these guys could do, how much faster they shot, how much more effective they were you know, um, mean rounds on target in the amount of time, but you got to quantify it. That's what we saw. We had to demonstrate, you could talk the game all you want and they're not going to want it. They don't want to play that. They're just like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Like we talked about going from a 25, uh, a 25 meter zero to a 50 meter zero, just changing that. And then we showed them the max ordinate. If you run, you know, standard height optics and you, you zero at 25 at a hundred, you're like seven inches high. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you're watching, I watched guys overseas line dudes up and pull the trigger and miss shots that I knew they were going to get, but it was because they, they, they didn't even understand the ballistics of the gun, the people training on it. And so we had to show them, listen, if you zero at 25, there's a visual variance that you have. You're not going to get as precise as zero because you're shooting at a shorter distance. So what appears to be just a little bit off center. Now, when you back it out of distance, it's far right, left, up, down, it's got to be verified at distance. And then we showed them what the max ordinate was zero at 25. Here's a good zero. Now we're going to shoot at hundred. Look how high it is. So if somebody sticks their head over a wall, you got a clean shot. You break a perfect shot, it goes over their head. Mm-hmm. You did everything right, but you weren't trained enough. And that was the, the application of ballistics on the battlefield wasn't taught. Um, the, the understanding of it, that stuff, we had to show them. You can't just explain it. You just can't. It's worthless. You're talking yourself. So that's what, like, that's the way you get to the regular military. Because we did it with the 82nd. We showed them. We changed the culture in that organization in a lot of ways, at least in that gap in time because guys could genuinely shoot effectively in a way that they couldn't on Monday when they left on Friday, they were, they were combat effective. Now that's good to hear because I remember whenever I was in Iraq back in 2005, you know, prior to going there, I had iron sights on my rifle. Then whenever we get in country, Hey, stick this RCO on your rifle. Okay. So what is it? What is all this stuff inside the optic mean? Like, yeah. They didn't. They didn't train train us on yeah. any of that. Like, hey, zero at a hundred yards, you're good. Okay, so I can hit things at a hundred yards. What does everything else mean? And, and you know, it took it. You know, like any big military, big organization, it takes a while for the information to get down. And it took a couple of years. It was in 2007, whenever I went through a course with retired gunner Richard Lawler. Where and he, I think he was working for Trigicon at the time, or he was mm-hmm. a contractor teaching. Yeah, the, the, yeah. yeah, he he was uh, he was teaching the RCO, and mm-hmm. that's whenever you know. So two two years time span goes, and I'm finally learning how to run this optic, yeah. and it's like, what the fuck? 
Why is it taking so long? And I think we're kind of in the same phase now. We just switched over to the squad common optic, uh, you know, essentially a Trigicon AccuPower. And it's like, well, are we going to teach people how to use this properly? Yeah. And, you know, time will tell. Yeah, here's a here's a little like kind of a, a little vignette about that, about just strapping optics on guns. Guys came in from the 82nd. I remember we were working with with one of their one of their battalions, came in and we had a whole block of instruction because I was one of the guys that taught. I taught half of it. And it was a use of the reticle on, on like an RCO, basically on their ACOGs. This is how you use it. This is how you range stuff. We had steel at different distances and they could, you know, they could they could look at the reticle, look how it's calibrated on, our, on an E-type and all that. Got it. Had them shoot it at the distance. Says, "Look, if you if you if you super elevate using the reticle, the Christmas tree, you're getting good hits." We had steel out there. We had guys spot before. It was it was we set it up like you're supposed to, right? Um, so they're like, "Wow, that's cool." Ran them through it. They they shot everything. So you guys understand it? Yeah. Okay. Everybody get on the back line. We set up a stage. Okay. With steel. Shoot a ready standby. Beep. And they freaking lost their mind. They run out. They put the chevron in the middle and shoot at 500. I'm like, "What are you like? What are you doing? Like, don't you understand it?" And what we realized is you can explain it. And they'll understand it and they'll shoot it slow. If you don't practice it and you don't train on it, it is worthless. You have, mm -hmm. you have, a, you have a, a capability in theory that it's not executable. And that's where the training piece It's like, you got to go out and train. And the only way that you're going to figure out what guys are going to do under even a modicum of stress is to put them under it. Like you know, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a sedentary range shooting, everybody's, everybody's freaking wide herb. But you start mm -hmm. running around and you're wheezing and you just ran a hundred yards and had to crawl under a truck. And now you got to shoot, you know, two, four, and then 500 yard targets. Like your mind is either going to go to what it, what it was trained on, or it's going to melt and their minds just melted. And then once we, we started running them through it a couple times in a, in a day of running gun stuff, then they got it, but you can't, you can't strap equipment on without the training. And that's, that is contrary. Running gun stuff is contrary to full side back to what we were originally talking about. And they don't, oh, you're just running around shooting. No, that's that's how we fight wars and stuff. That's how infantry moves. They run around and they maneuver and they shoot. So the applicability of it was hard for them to understand because all they saw were, oh, my, my men are out on the, on the range shooting. Like they're, they're qualifying. It's the prism of marksmanship is viewed, okay? Or, the, or marksmanship is viewed through the prism of qualifications. And that is a, a, like a fundamental problem. Yep, there's, it's a capabilities gap that I think that we all have. And, yeah. you know, me and me and Frank had, were talking about this on another podcast, but it's almost like marksmanship is a check in the box and mm -hmm. there is there there's no uh, quality control. You know, you have expert yeah. uh, sharpshooter and marksman. Hey, mm -hmm. you, you qualified. You're good. What does that mean, though? Yeah. It's, it's like you see the same kind of thing in law enforcement. It just means like effectively it means legally we can give you a rifle and we're covered. That, that's it. It's not, there's, there aren't, there isn't a real, a real reasonable level of skills. The, the fact that there's very little speed. I mean, I'm sure that it, that's changing now, but there should be speed in there. There should be reloads in there. Guys. I, I mean, I had guys that were, when I taught the malfunctions block at, at the 82nd, I had guys that couldn't clear malfunctions. I had guys in Iraq when I was out with them, I had guy have a malfunction, long story short. Anyway, I cleared a malfunction for somebody, a bolt override double feed that happened because they had shit magazines. When I came back, the company commander's like, hey, hey, man, I heard you hooked one of my boys up, you know, when you guys were doing this. So, like, what'd you do? And I said, oh, I just did this, this, and this, showed him. And he goes, can you show my guys? And I, I went there and sat down with, you know, each platoon just for, for a couple minutes. And it's like, they didn't know how to clear fucking malfunctions yep. other than tap rack. They didn't. I'm like, 
this is your this is it. This is your reserve parachute, dude. This is your main parachute and your reserve parachute all in one. And you have to be able to make it work no matter what. And like just banging it on the ground, banging the buttstock on the ground and mortaring it and hoping that works is not the answer. But there's there was no there was no just a basic block of malfunctions. I could teach any Marine in an hour or less to clear every malfunction that can happen in that gun without tools, unless the gun is broken. If the gun can be cleared with your bare hands, I can teach them how to do it reliably. Fuck, I can teach them how to do it blindfolded in an hour. We all should have got that and none of us did. And so, it's like, you know, it's like, it's crazy to me. So it, it's funny because whenever I was over in Israel back in 2016, you know, we, mm-hmm. were, we, we were training uh, our company, you know, minus company minus was training with uh, their counterterrorism unit. And I tell you what, like these guys for as young as they are, you're talking about guys who are between 19 and 23 years old. They are counterterrorism instructors and they're operators. And, you know, the amount of knowledge and skill that these young guys have, you know, at such a young age, it's, it's mind blowing. And, and, you know, you talk about malfunctions, like that's one of the first lessons we learned whenever we were over there. You know, they had this, I, I can't remember exactly what they call it, but it was a, like a fuck you stick, I think is what they called it. Um, and all they would do is they would take that stick and they would impose a, a malfunction by, you mm-hmm. know, just lightly touching the bolt and mm-hmm. causing the gun to go out of battery, causing a double feed, causing brass over bolt. And it was up to you to get that gun back in the fight. And we did that for a freaking hour. And it was annoying, but you know what? People learned how to clear out their own malfunctions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, why aren't we applying a lot of these same principles to what we do now? Can can I talk to that specific technique? Yeah. Okay. Here's the flaw in that. All right. I don't do that. And I don't advocate it. I understand what what it's intended to do and it succeeds Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, but I do not at all advocate it. Here's why. One mentally i know what's coming as soon as i see the stick i know it's coming mm-hmm. i know i'm about to have a malfunction my brain is already loaded for that it's already set up going okay something's going to come overwhelmingly i can predict what it is yep. okay that's one so it's not impromptu it's not i'm not learning about the gun in the firing cycle not going into battery that crunchy feeling versus the bolt slamming home okay mm-hmm. i'm denying myself the ability to learn what it feels like when my gun malfunctions because you know as well as i do as you get further along you'd be in the middle of a match and you you can fire a shot and know that that gun's not going to fire next time i can feel it yep go, yep that shit's not right like i know what right feels like that ain't it mm-hmm. okay so you're denying the ability to learn that one two you're also conditioning people to allow things near their gun you're conditioning people to allow someone to put something near their gun and disregard it and that to me is is a day no so i i, I when i do it i teach guys that have criminal functions and they just go out there and shoot man if your gun binds up i'm going to see what you do. I'm going to see how you clear malfunction. I can set up, I can replicate everything that can happen in that gun exactly the same way for everybody and have them clear it out. And once you know how to do it, everything is the same. Tap rack, replicate the loading sequence. If it doesn't work, unload the gun, make sure it's clear. Let the bolt go forward. Metal on metal day or night tells me it'll go into battery. Tap rack. So it's like, it's, I, 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 if I can load the gun and properly unload the gun, then I know how to clear every malfunction there. And I can teach that in 10 minutes. And it's like, and then in application, you have to recognize when the gun doesn't run, what to do. That's what's important. So it's like, you can put dummy rounds in, you can put brass, you can put empty brass in a magazine and have them shooting because that usually gets fucked up and binds up in the gun worse. They'll mm-hmm. figure it out. But there's only two answers. Tap rack or unload the gun, make sure it's clear the way we were taught to unload the gun, remove source feedlock, the operating parts of the rear, charging handle forward, 
Okay, muzzle up, muzzle down, make sure it's clear, metal on metal, and then we're right back to tap rack. It's that easy. But it's like, so on the malfunction side, that's why I'm saying I could teach in, in an hour with breaks and bullshit time, I could teach a platoon of to do that like nothing. But it's, we, we have to, again, that stuff, we're talking about two different techniques, two different countries, it's cool either way. As yeah. long as you fucking gun, the problem is that nobody here decided that that was important before you went out to the rifle range to be able to run your gun. Like, I, I don't get it. I also, when I, when I teach courses, and this came from teaching, you know, uh, dudes overseas with a, you know, conscripts with a second grade education, we were doing J sets. I look at it completely differently. I do not teach marksmanship first to beginner students. I don't, I don't, I don't give a shit. As long as you can break paper generally and you're safe, I want to, I want you to learn how to run the gun. I want you to learn how to load it, unload it, check status, clear, or whatever. I want you running that gun. I want you doing reloads. I want you manipulating the safety, all of that. Once you're capable of managing that gun, then we'll start talking about marksmanship. Because if not, it, and it's especially prevalent with pistols, if you can't run the gun, you're not in 100% control of the gun, then there's an anxiety that you have, like, holy shit, I hope, hope I don't make this freaking thing go boom when it's not supposed to. The freaking gun is going to put his boot in my ass. You're not thinking about shooting. You're thinking about not fucking up. Once yep. you can run the gun properly, then we can talk about sights and trigger. So it's like, it's a different way to view it, but it works when you think about it. When we were all kids learning how to drive, we didn't get in a car and get on the frigging highway. We drove around a parking lot where you can't run into anything and learn how to work all the pedals. When you can work all the pedals and the blinkers and all that, then you drive around town at 35 miles an hour. When you're good at that, then you can get on you know, a 55 mile an hour. Like you, you learn to manage the device safely, then you can take in road conditions. It's the same methodology. So it's like, I, I, that's something as well that the, the military, the Marine Corps and the Army are the same about it. It's like, it's all about like accuracy, accuracy. You gotta have, oh, we're working on accuracy and you gotta, you know, steady hold and all that. Dudes can't run their gun. They're not, they can't manage the freaking rifle properly. And they're trying to have them shoot at, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 meters. I'm like, you're, you're, we're missing a component block here that will make them more effective. So kind of shifting gears, um, kind of back to competitive shooting. So how much success would you say you've had getting other active duty guys? Like what, whether you were, when you were active duty yourself or even after you left active duty, but how much success have you had getting those, uh, those individuals in the military into competitive shooting? And is there ever a reluctance there? And if so, how, how have you overcome that reluctance? Yeah, I've, I've been able to get guys to, you know, interested in it and all that, but they're always the guys that want to be good at it. They're, they're guys that want to be a good, like, oh, when I was freaking tiny dude, all I ever wanted to be was an infantryman. I wanted to be in the Marine Corps like my dad. I wanted to, you know, go fight bad guys, that kind of shit. Like, I knew what I wanted to be, and I wanted to be really good at it. And I got there, and when I thought I was good at it, and I got tuned up by somebody, I wanted to be better at it. But there was an internal desire. I wasn't a minimum standard guy. Like, Hey, you just, whatever training block we're doing, that's what I'm doing. I wanted to do better. I wanted to be better. I sought that out. And there's a lot of guys out there in the military that are like that. And they need to be mentored. You need to say, listen, they need to understand the applicability because there's a lot of people, like you said, that are going to go, Oh, that'll get you killed. Or that's not, that's not applicable. Or you don't need that. Or and you're like, you're, you're talking to people that can't do it. Okay. So why are you talking to someone that doesn't know how to do what, what you, you intuitively realize is applicable and listening to them? And I can explain it to them like all this can, like say, listen, this is the balance of speed and accuracy is important. Everyone that I've, that has been open to learning and wanting to, every soldier, sailor, airman, marine that I've ever talked to, and I explained it to them, every one of them's gone, fuck yeah, man, that's cool. Then they go out and shoot like, this is fun. So now it's not only fun, but it's directly related 
to what you do. Like in your survivability is, is, is directly influenced by these skills. That said, the guys that aren't that into it, they're just like, ah, you know, I'm just not really not that into guns. I don't really want to shoot. I'd rather go, you know, I'd rather go freaking snowboarding. Not that there's anything wrong with snowboarding. I like it. I enjoy snowboarding. But the bottom line is if you're an infantryman, you should put a little extra emphasis on the shooting piece if you're not getting as much as you know you should get. And so that's there's a there's a desire piece of it that 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 is it's either easy to sell or impossible to sell. Well, it's like I I, I com- commonly tell people, you know. Okay, so you can get to to the objective. You you can do all that sweet, sexy, tactical stuff. Cool, cool story. What about whenever you get to the objective? Or what if you don't even get to the objective and you start getting engaged by an enemy? Mm-hmm. How do you fight through that? You have to be able to actively engage your target, run your gun, and hit them accurately enough with speed in order to get through so you can get to your objective and accomplish the mission. Once you're engaged, then it's shooting. Once you once you make contact, we're, we're we're moving to the objective. We get hit on the way in. Once we make contact, it's there's maneuver and all that. I got it. There's some, but it's it's not. It's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of shooting going on. Like you you can shoot good. I mean, and that was that was demonstrated in in, in a couple big fights that freaking the corps in Fallujah. Guys mm-hmm. could actually shoot noticeably better than their adversary, like way better. So they were plucking dudes like crazy with ACOGs at, you know, 175 yards around the corner of a building. Why? Because they could shoot. So at the point of delivery, the marksmanship piece, now once the fight starts, now we got to be able to shoot. Yep. Squirting bullets at people doesn't do anything. It actually emboldens them because like, these fuckers can't hit me. They'll mm-hmm. come at you. You start dumping guys and they're like, oh shit, I'm not going to stick my head out the window because I'm freaking, you know, jarring had a block away is going to take it off with a 30 or a 20 inch gun. Like, so it's, that's, they don't understand. Like, it's not. Just because you have a tool, if you can't master it, it doesn't do you any good. And on the other side, once you're engaged, the shooting piece is huge. Like you've got to be able to neutralize whatever threats are out there so you can move forward. So you can facilitate bounding and maneuver and moving the guns and moving the vehicles. Like, it, like but if you can't shoot, you're, you're not getting it done. You're not, you're not earning your pay. You're just a participant, right? Yeah. You just, yeah. You're just there. I was, you know, participant. I was there. Getting done. I was there. Like, that's why I tell people participation doesn't equal proficiency. Just because mm-hmm. you showed up doesn't mean you're any good at it. it. Just means you were there. Big thumb. Thanks for showing up. But like, that I saw the difference. I saw when I was a, a you know an advisor um, in 05 doing with AWG. I saw different units, um, and I, I can't remember. I can't remember which one it was right now off the top of my head. I can't remember that I was um, that I was out with. It was fifth or seventh. But anyway, it was uh, it was a rifle company I was out with. And their, um, their company commander had been a prior enlisted force guy. And they did a really good shooting package um, at the Palms. And th- those dudes could freaking bang. I remember seeing them in their test fire area, like shooting stuff the size of like soda cans at 100 yards. Like I was like, I remember like, like distinctly going, damn, these brothers can bang. And the level of calm, those guys would go out. Like you'd see them get ready to go out. They're like, hey, man, we're, we're going we're gonna to go freaking, we're going to go freaking throw down. Like, hey, man. Godzilla's on his way into Tokyo, bro. Here we go. Like they were, and you could tell their confidence was so high because they're like, if we get it, if you want to throw bullets back and forth, we got you. Like, let, let's go. And that, that is, that lends itself to mission accomplishment and it lends itself to survivability and safety. Everybody is better for it. The commander, if you're just looking purely from a promotional perspective, if you're the commander and your guys are, are taking ground and winning battles, you're a good commander. You know what I'm saying? The guys on the ground, the better they shoot, the safer they are, the more they keep their freaking squad and their teams intact and unballistically altered. So 
everybody benefits from it. And I could, I could see the difference between units that were really proficient and units that weren't as proficient. It was noticeable in their demeanor. Yeah. Awesome answer, man. Really well said. Um, I want to bring switch gears to that podcast you're on with Ben Stager. <laughs> I think you mentioned something to the fact that GM should only be able to become GMs through like the nationals level match fund, yes, which I think absolutely. is I think is an awesome concept. Do you think mm-hmm. the accessibility of the GM card has kind of diluted its prestige? Yes. I watch people shoot classifiers. I shoot a classifier, you know, um, one and done. Unless the unless the apparatus there's something wrong. Like steel doesn't fall, then we calibrate. Hey, steel wasn't calibrated right. Okay, get a reshoot. That's just the rules. But I don't go back to the to the shack and pay another ten bucks and shoot the classifier. And then, well, man, uh, I dropped one. It, it would have been a hundred, or it would have been a whatever. And then go back and pay another ten bucks. I watch people shoot classifiers. The most I've ever seen somebody shoot a classifier five times, and they shot like I remember watching a dude shot like a thirty-six and a fifty-one and a twenty-nine and a fucking seventy-six, and then shot a hundred. Like I got a hundred. You're like. No, you did it. Every once in a while, a blind squirrel finds a nut. It's been dirtied up because people repeat classifiers. The, the scores are not, I mean, I know I got a shitload of friends that are GMs. And they're like, dude, they're national level. They're competitive. Like, they're dudes in the nationals. So like, I can't step up and shoot a 100 on a classifier every time. Like, I can usually, like, I can bang. I can get in the 90s, like 90 and above. But I'm not just stepping up, banging 100 classifiers because I'm a GM. It's not, it's not that way. And that's because guys shoot hero or zero with their hair on fire, and they shoot a 26, and they shoot 100, and they take the 100. And it's like it's just the, the system. I think you should cap out at master. And if you're not winning, like at a minimum regional match, like area matches or regional matches, if you're not winning those, then, then you're not GM. Like this is what it is. Some people can say, hey, whatever. But it's the, the, the classifier system has been dirtied up by people shooting classifiers outside of their capability and getting lucky. And I have watched it, and I know I'm not the only one. Yeah, I've seen it too, man. Um, if you're shooting it five times and you're paying, obviously, it's, there's no difference. It's like a slot machine, right? You're just yeah. putting the quarter in until you hit all sevens. So um, back when I was in Lejeune, I put together a band of Marines and we would go out to USPSA competitions. I was just trying to expose them to practical shooting. And one of my... One of my um, obstacles with them was trying to get them beyond classifications, right? Like they, they were so focused. They were like, this is the only stage I care about in the entire match. And I, I have an idea of like what you're going to say to that. Um, I'm, I'm just going to harken back to one of your earlier comments where you said marksmanship is viewed through qualifications. And I think people like tend to look at labels, characterizations and be like, oh, I want to be at this level whatnot. What would you say to a new shooter who uh, expresses that opinion to you? I would say that shoot, shoot to get better, shoot at the edge of your capabilities because there is nothing cooler. And, and I know I'm not, I'm, I doubt I'm the only one even on this spot, this cast. I have shot matches as a, as a, a class shooter and beat GMs in matches. I have shot them as a master shooter, master class shooter and beat GMs in them. Like, but I don't want to be a master class shooter getting beat by a B class shooter. Cause then I'm not really a master class shooter. Like, you want to you want to be fighting you know fighting people that are a, you know a weight class above you not below you and the people that are paper GMs are the people that show up and you see them in a match and you're like I just tuned you like a fucking piano bro and you're a GM like come on man like I I, I remember uh, out in California beating two guys that were GMs and this is no shit they're shooting limited with badass fucking limcat guns and hand loads and shit and I'm 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 shooting a freaking uh, P10 a CZP10 with freaking Winchester white box. I'm like, I just, I just beat two guys that are 
limited GMs. That's not possible. Like I thought it was a typo. I'm like, no, they're GMs, but yeah, they just, you know, they shot classifier. Like the game. I'm like, you just you look silly. You look silly when you're 27 and you've got, you know, you've got three or four A-class shooters and all of the master shooters above you. It just so I would say look at look at your performance in the match. Stop looking at classifications. That's it. That's that is that is not it's a fantasy. It doesn't mean anything if you can't perform. So if I just magically make you a GM, is that good now? Is that, are you done? No, I want to win the match. The goal is to win the match. Everything else is freaking window dressing. Yeah. Um, you remind me of kind of what I told those shooters back at the time. I, was, I said something effective, like don't reach for the crown if you're not ready to sit on the throne. And you're exactly <laughs> right. Like if you're a GM getting beaten by lesser classifications, um, it makes you look stupid. And yeah. it, it kind of like, you're the one, the tide just went out. And you're the only one who wasn't wearing a bathing suit, you know? Yeah, exactly. So exactly the goal should be, I mean, just because I, I get I get it all spun up because I'm fucking fidgety and shit like that. But just tell them, just, your goal is to win the match. The goal is to win the match. Whatever match it is, if there are, you know, five national level shooters in there, I just don't want to beat all of them. You know, if I'm going to step on the line with, with you know, with Ben Steger and, you know, Joel Park and JJ Rikaz and all, we're in the same squad. My goal when I step on the line is to win that stage. I don't care who's there. I'm going to shoot as good as I can because I want to win the stage. Will I win it? Eh, chances are not very good. But I'm not going up there going, I hope I just don't suck really bad. I'm like, I'm going there to win the fucking stage. If I don't, hey, I gave it all I got. And if guys look at it that way as opposed to, like, I have this classification and you have that classification, the, the emphasis is in the wrong spot when you're looking at a bullshit paper classification. We're talking about guns and targets and timers right now, real time, just shoot. Yeah, I'm all about it, man. Um, switching back to, like, practical shootings, applicability – with like military guys who are actually out in the field. Um, have you ever seen practical shooting help someone who hasn't experienced combat, like process things faster, apply marksmanship in high like chaos and high intensity uh, moments? Have you ever seen that yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you see people that, that shoot competitively, that learn how to fix problems because weird shit happens. They learn how to manage their gun. They learn how to keep track of targets, spatial orientation. You're, it's not just pure shooting. You've got, to, you've got to remember where you are on the stage. You've got to have a plan. You've got to be able to adjust off the plan. I mean, I'm gonna shoot this stage and I know right here, I'm not gonna do a reload because I, I'll have to do a static reload, but I have to hit that steel. So now I put pressure on myself because I'm going to hit that last piece of steel slide lock as I run five yards to the next shooting position. I got time to do a reload and not lose anything, but I got to make that shot. So now I'm assessing what are my, what's my real skill? I've got a, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a popper that I dropped that activates another target. Can I shoot that popper, another paper, and then go back to the activator? What, like, do I really know what I'm capable of doing? If I make a mistake, how do I fix it on the fly at a high rate of speed? Like, how do I recognize problems? All that stuff is like, that's all on display every match. And every match, I don't know, I learned something. Every single match, I screw something up. Every single match, I go, I did. I, I could have done that better, or I did that wrong. Or sometimes I go, wow, I actually know how to do that. Like, shit, man, that works. But you're, you're learning how to run a gun at a high rate of speed and follow a plan that has to be adaptable. How could that possibly be wrong? It, guys that shoot good on USPSA and, you know, <clears throat> with rifles and pistols, that is directly applicable because it is it is a, a spatial perception and a weapons perception. I've got to know what's around me and I've got to know what my gun's doing to make my gun do what I want it to do with all the things around me. I've got to keep track of the 180. Like there's a lot of stuff that is component skill based that's directly applicable. 
there's no way anybody can say that it's bad for, for a combative shooter, a, you know, a military member or a, a cop or something like that. No way. Well said. Thank you. So having served in the military and understanding the constraints that our younger guys have, um, what recommendation, what recommendations would you give them to max, maximize their training efforts? You know, time for live fire, dry fire, you know, how to train when preparing for specific matches or even missions while you were operational. Uh, dude, dry fire. First of all, dry fire. Um, I had me personally, I bought a rifle and a pistol exactly like what I carried. When I had, you know, an M4 and a Beretta, I had an M4 and a Beretta. When I went to the unit, I had an M4 in 1911, I had an M4 in 1911. It looked identical, it was a carbon copy. You can look at my rifle at home and it looked exactly like my work on minus a laser, right? And I, I dry fired with it, I dry fired, I did reloads, I did, you know, I drew, I did transitions. Everything I could possibly do in dry fire, I did with an identical gun. I mean, there's a lot without ever dropping the hammer on a primer. There's tons of stuff that you can do that's weapons handling based and it's legitimately marksmanship based. But the, the dry fire piece, a lot of guys don't realize how important it is, how important it is to dry fire. And once you see the fruits of dry fire, once you dry fire a bunch and then you go to match, you're like, holy shit, like that legitimately works. It really, it is enhanced. I haven't shot in three weeks and it enhanced my performance, then you're sold. But you got to get guys there and, and they've got they've got to have a mentorship that within the organization or have a friend that's that shoots with them that really emphasizes how important dry fire is, because that's where you're going to get your gains, because you're going to be pressed for time. You got you got train ups, you got deployments, you got different, you know, different things that you have to do on the military side. You're going to have to find a small sliver of time that you can do it. in. it doesn't take a lot, but it takes a dedicated process. Like I have a dry fire regimen that that I do. And it's very specific and it's not two hours a day because I don't have two hours a day. You know, it's three 15 minute blocks. That's all I got. And they're not all together because attention span is an issue. And I want to separate the things that I'm doing. I want to separate from doing, you know, stuff from concealment. If I'm doing stuff from either a duty rig or from a sport rig. And then when I'm doing rifle stuff, I separate them all. So I focus for 15 minutes. My gray matter is doing this. They, they can easily do that. And so it's yeah. like the emphasis on it is important. Well, I noticed, uh, I, I saw on Instagram the other day, like one of the things that you do every single morning, whenever you get up or it's something that you just started doing, but you get up, you put your, uh, concealed carry rig on, and then you dry fire at a target. Mm -hmm. That's what 20, 20, 25 yards away. 20 yards and, away in my house, all the way front to back. Yep. Yep. And then you have what an index card there and it's, it's supposed to, yeah, I've got the, I've got the head off a USPSA metric with a three by three post in the middle. Yep. And you have to hit that in one and a half seconds, you know, mm -hmm. speed no. and accuracy, you know? Yep. And with a red dot on a pistol, it gives me all the feedback I need. I don't need any dry fire trainers or none of that. That's the, be the beauty of a red dot. I mean, mm -hmm. you can still do it with irons, but you got to be a little, I think you have to be a little more um, experienced, a little more focused to, to tell if what you're really doing. But a red dot tells you like, if you pull a trigger, that dot's jumping around, it gives yep. you all the feedback you need, but it's, it makes a massive, massive difference. So one of the things I, I you know, I, I said this on a previous episode, but I also told this to a friend of mine. He was like, what's one thing that we could do, you know, to help improve in the infantry, uh, you know, just get better with our weapons familiarization, handling, shooting, all that kind of stuff. And, and what I recommended to him is I was like, what do we have on us all the time when we're in, in country? He's like, well, our weapon. I was like, exactly. You have your weapon on you 24-7. That weapon doesn't leave your sight. So mm -hmm. whenever we're in the rear, 
why not have the guys get up, go to the armory, draw their weapons, and they have their weapons on them all freaking day? Is it time extensive? Sure, it is. But, you know, what is it training you to do? Have your weapon on you at all times, become familiar with mm-hmm. it all the time. It's mm-hmm. like, why aren't we doing that? You know, machine gunners and mortarmen, uh, they're doing their gun drills. Why can't we be doing our gun drills? Uh, I agree. I would have me a part of every day, a requirement in the, in the infantry, especially, you know, and infantry reconnaissance, that whole side of it, it should be a requirement. You, you get up in the morning, you go to PT, whatever, you know, you do your PT, however you structure that, whether it's an organized one or it's by squad or team or whatever, when you get done, you draw your weapons from the arms room, you go to the armory, draw your weapons and you dry fire for 20 minutes. Everybody does it, period. Everybody dry fires. No, it's not conditional. It's not, we're going to do it today. No. Part of the training schedule is you get up in the morning, like if it's still the way it is when I was in the fucking core, you get up in the morning, you do PT. That's just the standard. And then at the end of PT, you dry fire. And then when that's done, you turn your weapons into the armory and you go back and get cleaned up and it's the first call for whatever you got going on. But that way, every single person does it and you have a battery like ready reloads. We're going to do, you know, you have a, these are things that you do, do X amount. I know that they had it in the shooting packages. They had drill cards and stuff like that. You can set it up. So we do the following things. You get timers, so there are part-times on it. Like, you got to be able to reload your rifle in X amount of times. You have to be able to clear a malfunction, tap rack in X amount of time. But you now you're, you're giving them, there, there's, a, there's a, a culture of dry fire that's being built into the organization, and there's standards. This is what we establish as standards, okay? Like, you, you need to be able to reload your rifle, bolt forward reload in your rifle in X amount of time. Well, now it's up to the team leaders and the squad leaders and the platoon sergeants to, you know, to enforce that. But... What you're doing at the ground level is building a culture of weapons handling and a familiarity. What that translates to is efficiency on target. Yeah, absolutely. But what it also translates to, because I'm the king of selling shit to hire, safety. People aren't pulling triggers and, and having negligent discharges and all that because they know how to manage their guns. Because when I was in when I was in recon, if I was walking around and, and my finger was on a trigger or a weapon was on fire when it wasn't supposed to be. There's a freaking staff starting or gunny in my ass with both boots. And I was pushing the earth for a while. Like that shit wasn't tolerated. Like what you're unaware of what's happening to your rifle. You just, it's just some shit you're carrying around like a sandwich. Like I remember getting tuned up one time. And after that, I was like, okay. I, and I, I brought, just tell a story. I brought a rifle down and put it, didn't put it on safe. So I drove my rifle up, put it on fire and drove it down and put it on safe a thousand times in a row. A thousand times in a row. Facing the wall and Okinawa. And what did I never do the rest of my entire life? Bring a rifle down without putting it on safe. Yeah, it wasn't fun. After a thousand, I could barely lift my arms up to brush my teeth. But the bottom line is the corrective training served a purpose. That kind of stuff. It was that enforced. Now, when you build a culture of dry fire in an organization, that's tied to PT, fitness, weapons handling, um, infantrymen. Like, come on. It all goes together. That, to me, is the way to do it. I think that would solve a tremendous amount of problems, and it would give a glide glide path to a, to a, a really effective, you know, ground combat element. So kind of switching gears to yourself now, um, mm-hmm. can you tell us about CTT solutions and the type of training that you offer yeah, and, I, um, and how did it come about? Uh, it came about, um, I was working, I was working for VTAC and I wound up leaving and going out off on my own. And I, I started out with a contract with uh, Border Patrol um, I was actually contracted to the team that, you know, Brian Terry, rest his soul, who was a, a, a Marine as well, former Marine, was killed during the whole Fast and Furious thing. I was contracted to his team for a year, and then I got kind of tied in with Portac, and I was teaching rifle classes, pistol classes for them, 
that was the beginning of my, my business. And then I kind of leaned harder into the, the civilian kind of the retail market because it was a lot larger. And then mm -hmm. I've come full circle. And now I do almost entirely law enforcement, like almost entirely. But it's, it is, I do um, a lot of pistol red dot stuff and concealment stuff. Concealment stuff was kind of my, my thing. I do a lot of that. Rifles, rifle stuff is not as common, um, but pistol stuff is really common. So the, the focus is on that. I also do vehicle stuff now because there's a lot of crap in the industry uh, on the vehicle side. If there's one one particular purveyor of it that's, you know, spends a shitload of time that, you know, teaching people how to fight from the front seat, which doesn't work in real life. Um, so uh, to, to get away from that whole idea that vehicles are some kind of special thing, I, I just, because I ran in vehicles in Iraq for two years, um, soft skin vehicles in the SUNY triangle. Um, there's, there's stuff about it. Like the, the whole vehicle CQB bullshit, it's just exterior fighting. It's just maneuver. You're just yeah. fighting outside around vehicles. If it's not moving, it's just terrain and fighting around terrain, fighting around terrain. If you understand tactics and maneuver and flanks and angles, then you know how to fight outside. I don't care if it's a dumpster or a truck. It's the same fucking thing. Okay. So it's that, that part of it, bringing that to law enforcement. Um, and my partner that teaches with me is he's a, he's a cop out in Long Beach, but he was an infantryman in the Corps for six years before that. And we teach together. So he's got, he bridges the cop world and the, you know, the freaking 0311 side. So we, we got a good thing going and it's a, it's a, that's a, a new push that I'm doing because I just want to get it out there because, you know, violence is getting pretty bad against cops and they, they need something more than just, you know, some, some stylized, cool Instagram looking stuff. They, they need fighting like mm -hmm. skill. So you brought it up, the stylized, cool Instagram style stuff on the Stager podcast. You called it um, entertainment, I believe, yeah. which is a great term. Um, so why do you think, out of all the out of all the individuals going out to look for training, some of them will show up kind of like pulled in by that kind of Instagram theatrics. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think that's become so pervasive, and why why are we seeing that so prevalent in people going out to get gun training? Well, I think there's a portion of it that that is based on experience. Okay, a lot of guys that I know that are that have that have been you know been overseas in the military. Um, a lot of cops that I know that have been in, you know, OISs before, have been in you know, critical situations before that are lethal and gun related, knife related, that kind of stuff. They're like everybody else. It's it's a theory. Like violence is kind of a theory. You know, fighting other human beings like until they're dead is a theory. And once you live it, it changes you. Like you look at you look at training differently. Like wow, I don't know anybody that's ever been in a tick or ever been in an OIS that goes, yeah, I had that shit covered. I was good. At the end of it, you're like, whoa, man, I didn't see that. Like, I thought I was better at that than I was. Or, man, I didn't even see that coming. Like, there's always something to learn. But what the biggest thing that I see that people learn on the experience that are experienced is that I, there's shit that I don't know, and I can never be too good or too fast or too accurate. On the other side, there's people that are wanting to feel empowered and wanting to feel cool and wanting to feel, and it's like, it is, it is, it is entertaining and fun. They look at trainings, oh, it's so cool. It's so badass. And the people that, are, that, that have a different view of it because they've experienced that life go, will this help me or, or, or this is a waste of time? And so it's been sold. It's a marketing tool that tries to catch its chewing gum for the eyes. And it pulls these people in. It's like, oh, you're going to run around and shoot through windshields. Uh, you're going like, you're gonna, to you're gonna do all these mag dumps and run around and shoot from the ground and all. Just learn how to stand up and shoot fast and accurate with a rifle first. And then we'll make it harder on you. But it's, it's all component stuff. The magic is there's no magic. It's simple shit. 
but, but you have to work hard at it. And they're looking for the, the easy button, the shortcut, and it comes across in video. I'm going to teach you to be a super duper hero in two days. And it, it's just, it's, it's not, it's selling. I call it selling magic. That's what they're doing. They're selling magic to people that want to believe. And it, it's effective. That's why marketing is effective, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, that's on the instructor side. Would you say on this, like on the, on the, um, the participant side, um, I would characterize them in two, two categories. Either you show up and you're ready to be a student or you're there because like what you said, you kind of want to be a tourist, right? You want this yeah. vicarious experience. You want this proximity to masculinity. Um, you, yes. Want to, yes. you want to be part of that whole crowd. Um, I, go ahead. Oh, no, just say just real quick. I, what I see with that is I see there's there's a validation that that people get from it, and I, I like I call it shooting for trinkets, and I kind of bash it. And some of my friends do it in their businesses, and I got it. And I'm not I'm not meaning it as a pejorative on them because it's a marketing thing. But I don't shoot for trinkets. I don't need patches or badges or coins or coffee cups or secret underwear or fucking anything. I just want to shoot better. Like I just want to shoot better. And like, I, I'm not going to be your dancing monkey so I can get your trinket. I'm just not. And I think it's silly because people do that. And it's a, it's a badge of honor for them. Look, I have this trinket. I'm like, go to, a, go to a USPSA match. I just posted a thing about that. Like, dude, I went to a USPSA match in San Diego. Got my ass handed to me by a freaking, like a little beach bunny and, and, and freaking boy shorts and an Under Armour jog bra and a dude that came off oxygen to shoot the stage. Along with all the other guys that could bang. Like, and I showed up and I was like, I just got my ass handed to me. I need to get better at this. Like, I'm not, I don't want to just go somewhere to feel good about myself. I want to be better. And by default, I'll feel good. So they're looking for something that validates them. And that doesn't involve really a tremendous amount of work. And that's the part that they miss. The magic is that it's hard work. You know, that's where you're, you're gaining the people that go there for the entertainment side of it to be empowered or validated or part of that thing or all aren't really serious about shooting. They're, they want to have fun and it includes guys. Yeah. Um, sorry, Matt, sidebar. Uh, he mentioned like magical underwear. What if we start giving out special pairs of silkies to uh, people oh. for competition? Oh. <laughs> I, did, I, I did have a lucky pair of underwear that I wore on every mission I went on in Iraq back in 05. Hey, man. <laughs> gotta, have, gotta have rabbit's foot, dude. Oh, yeah. Gotta have rabbit's foot. Right. I, was, I was forced to throw them away after the, uh, after the deployment. Yeah, the luck has run its course. But um, Matt, we're going to talk about Dude, that. A set of a set of silkies with 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 I can bang on the back. <laughs> that might make its way into a different demographic, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say that might be uh, what would I put on the front. I don't that's know. A, that's yeah. a multi-purpose set of. Uh, that might be just for the Navy. I just say that. I'm sorry, Navy guys. Love you guys. Honestly, no, it's all Thanks good. Folks. Oh man, that's hilarious. Um, okay, well, I, I told you, you still got some Lance Corporal in me, bro. I think the title of this episode is going to be I Can Bang. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fantastic. Um, last question I had for you is from the instructor point of view. How regularly do you attend classes yourself to try to learn new things? Um, and who are some instructors that you hold in pretty high regard? Um, I, I attend at, like as often as I can, honestly. Um, guys that have done a different different kind of skill venues. I mean, I've, do, I've done classes with uh, ben Steger, obviously, JJ Rukaza, I've done it with my buddy Matt Franca from X-Ray, and I've done it with Craig Douglas. So those are the four that I've gone to. Um, and so I, I like to I like to go out and and I like to shoot with people and see what they see what they see in me. Let them coach me, be a student. I mean, it's it's a good 
it's a good thing to go out there and, and check your shit at the door and just go, I'm just going to shoot. I'm going to shoot against, I mean, I, went out, I shot with Alex Goki when I was out there. It's, I mean, he's a friend of mine, but it's good to shoot against people that are just your peers. Like, hey, it's just a dude. We're just hanging out to jar heads, doing our thing. And they, the, the, they'll look at you and they'll evaluate you in a way that you won't evaluate yourself because you can't see yourself. And even if you video yourself, you still, I don't see when I look at a video, the same stuff that Ben sees or JJ sees or Matt sees. And it's important. The guys that don't do that, like, I know that it's the thing that some people like, you know, don't want to take, or I don't take classes or I don't want to take classes. I don't care. I, I'm my, I, I, if I, if I think I'll benefit from it and by default benefit my, you know, my patrons, my clientele, then I'll do it. And it's fun for me. I like being a student once in a while and not being in charge of shit. So yeah, yeah I, as, as often as I can, um, I, I, I definitely, you know, I'll definitely go out and shoot and I'll, I'll shoot, I'll shoot with, you know, anybody that, that has demonstrated that they, they know something that maybe I don't, or they're there. They have a quality or an attribute that I admire. I'll go, wow, I want to shoot with them and see how they got that or where they got that. And I think firearms instruction is particularly difficult because like, it's so personal, right? You can't see what your students seeing through their sights and you are in some way relying on them to be honest and also present in order to tell you what they're experiencing. Yeah, um, can absolutely. you talk about like one thing that you've taken from another instructor most recently that you've started applying to your own shooting? Absolutely. Um, I've taken it and it's come from, a, from, from three guys, but it's all part of a little, a little cabal. And it's, I think a, the real focus I've gotten initially was from Matt uh, at X-Ray, Matt Franca was the visual piece. I've really, really, really focused on the visual piece because I understood it, but I didn't really understand it until I started putting emphasis on it and started looking at, at the kind of gains that I was getting and my visual perception of the targets. I was just, I was just down in Houston teaching a class and I was shooting uh, doubles, coming off the draw shooting doubles with 25 splits, consistent 25 splits at 10 in the head. And when, when it, you know, when you're doing something, you kind of get it, when it clicks, all of a sudden it's perfectly clear. You're like, oh shit. I thought I had it, but now I actually understand it because I was, I was, as I was shooting with really strict discipline target focus, I was literally seeing the bullets hit. I knew exactly. I went, I drew one, one, two. And if I looked off the gun, I go, I know exactly where they are. Like if you could plug, plug a thumb drive in my head, you'd see it. Like I knew exactly where it was. I knew when I threw one, I knew where it was. I knew if it was on the line. And that visual piece, once you get it is, is massive, massive when it comes to speed, because you're processing speed directly, you know, it is reflected in your scores and times. And that, that I got, it's been reinforced through all three guys, through Matt, through, you know, Ben Steger and Joel Park. All three of those guys hit that really hard. I really got the first emphasis on it, shooting with Matt out of one of his courses. When I went out there, he was out in Casa Grande. I went out and shot with him and he was, he, he was, he was talking the piece. But then when I was shooting, he was going, listen, this is what I see you doing. He was, he was critiquing me and I was like, it's freaking awesome. So that's, to me, that has been, that has been, you know, a, a game changer on it because I understood it, understanding it and being able to actually apply it and see it in, in, in process are very different. So yeah, that, that's what I, that's the big, the, the recent like quantum shift in how I train myself came from, from Matt and, and, you know, Ben and Joel. Yeah. I took a class from Ben a few weeks ago and I would say, um, visual specificity, dot yeah, occlusion. Yeah. There's a quite a few things I brought, uh, I got from yeah. that. Uh, also, that, that guy's just amazing instructor. Um, definitely. Oh, yeah. Again, but and yeah. It's funny, like the dot occlusion. I shot one of my friends down at TTPOA, had an SRO on a, a 2011. And he was he had an included dot because operationally, he's like, I, I'm, sometimes I'm looking into the sun. Like, I lose the dot. I have no, no dot at all. He just closed off the front for training. And then he realized, shit, I shoot just as good 
and it mitigates any issues I have from the sun. So I grabbed this pistol. I'm like, I only got one eye, but fuck it. Let me see if I can figure this out. And what I did is I put the dot right at the, at the top of the window. And then I put it so I was looking over the top of the, of the glass at the target. And it's, I had a video of me. I could, I could bang. I was hammering targets with an occluded dot with only one eye. And then what I got from that could just try and shit that you're not supposed to be able to do, but you're like, I'm too stupid not to try. I'm like, all of a sudden I was like, uh, all of a sudden I understood target focus because literally with only one eye, I can either look at the target or I can look at the dot. Here, pick one. I can't, there's no way I can look at both. And when I looked over the top, I instantly, boom, understood target focus. That kind of stuff is like, and that's something that, that, that Ben and Joel and, and Matt push really hard as well. It's a new, there, there's a new horizon in the shooting side, technology wise and understanding wise that, that, I mean, a lot of people are doing it. Those three just happen to be friends of mine. But I mean, there's a lot of people pushing it. I think that the, the plank owners are those three guys on that, really. Yeah, um, I actually had my dot included for all of Area 5 except for one stage. Yeah, if, if I still had a functional right eye, I would. I absolutely would. I think it's it makes sense. The Armson OEG was that, the occluded eye gun sight. That, I mean, they fielded that on the Sante prison raid for a reason. Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it was super fast and low light. And you couldn't see through it. It was completely occluded. So it's like... The, the technology has proven to be effective on combat operations since 1970. Like this isn't new. We're all of a sudden like back to the future, you know? So I got to ask then, what, why do you think we keep forgetting these lessons? I mean, it, it, it happened whenever, you know, we could, we could go back to Vietnam war. There was a counterinsurgency handbook that was written, but then, we completely forgot all about it because we went to we went back to training conventional style. And then, mm -hmm. OK, the global war on terrorism kicked off and we're in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan. And, you know, the secretary of defense is like, oh, we need a new uh, we need to write a book on counterinsurgency. Mm -hmm. And his advisor was like, we have a book on counterinsurgency. It was written back in the 1960s or 1970s. Yeah. It's that book right there that's collecting dust on your on your bookshelf. So what, why do you think these lessons that we have learned are constantly being lost? I think, it's, I think it's because the training required to sustain that knowledge effectively is difficult. And it can get expensive. It's, I mean, there's, there's all, there's, the, the more dynamic it becomes, the more it becomes counterinsurgency, is a, is a, that's, a, that's a whole process. How you run a counterinsurgency it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and there's just I, there's just no dedication to it. You go back to the shooting piece. Like when I was a kid, because I was like, told my dad someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be in the Marine Corps. Sure shit I was. And um, I remember him telling me something. He said, if you don't remember anything, he goes, someday you're going to go to war. Like if you're in the, if you're in the Corps, you're going to go to war someday. He was right. He said, just remember one thing. Just keep shooting until the problem solved. It's like you don't shoot once. You don't shoot twice. You just keep shooting people until they're, they're not a problem anymore. This is, I was like, 12 years old. I'm like, okay, whatever. It didn't make any sense to me. And that was something that he learned from his uh, platoon sergeant who was a raider in World War II. He's like, you just keep shooting. You don't, you don't just shoot once and see what happened. You keep shooting until you know the problem solved and then you move on to something else. And it's like, that was something they knew. In, they knew in, obviously they knew it in World War II. They knew it in Korea. Like people learned that on the ground. It was never put into a manual. Where did you ever see a manual in the Marine Corps? I never saw one in the Marine Corps or the Army where it said, just keep engaging that target with your rifle until it drops. Nope. It was never in a manual. They, they, yeah. they tried, they brought on failure to stop. And the whole failure to stop drill was, you know, 
shoot at the chest, one in the head. Well, you know, from what I heard is that came about because they wanted to conserve ammo. But Failure to Stop originally came about during the Rhodesian Wars in Africa, and it was because all those guys were drugged up and, you know, hopped up on drugs. Mm -hmm. And it was, you're shooting the enemy until they are no longer a threat. Here's the thing to me, too, when they do the the whole failure drills and two of the body, one of the head, why don't you shoot him in the fucking head? Like, if I'm going to shoot two of the body, one of the head, why don't I just shoot you in the head? Why don't I just skip the part that I don't think is going to work and go to the part that I know is going to work? Or find another spot that I know you can't have armored, like your pelvis or your legs or the ball joints. Get a mobility kill and then finish you. Like, there's fighting's fighting, man. It's nothing fancy. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the dirty business that we do. But the, I, I look at it and go, you don't understand what you're trying to do. Oh, two of the body, one of the head, you just... Okay, is that even realistic? Is yeah. it if you shoot two two to the body on somebody and it doesn't work, they're not going to be there for you to shoot one in the head. No, no nobody sticks around when you shoot at them. Like mm-hmm. not from my experience. So no. the minute the bullets start flying, people are running. So like, what when are you really doing this? And what are you really doing? And if you think that they might have armor or they might have a you know a freaking body bomb or something like that, shoot them shoot them in the pelvis, shoot them in the femurs, that area. Okay, shoot them in the head, whatever. But it's like now it's the training piece that takes time, that takes effort, that takes understanding, that takes a lot of practice. That you know, like, and and I think that's why the lessons back to what you said, lessons aren't passed on because they take effort to do it. And you know what? It takes a long time. We need to get guys to the range. We need to get them qualified. We need to like the train's got to keep going. We got to do all the mundane stuff that has to get done as per commander's requirements. And training gets hacked off. It gets cut. First thing. Because you, you can't, and this is something that's a mantra of mine, you can't see proficiency. I can't look at a Marine and go, that guy can really shoot well. But when he doesn't know how to shoot well, I can see it. It jumps mm-hmm. out at you. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it's a an lack ugly of baby. proficiency is really obvious in application, you know? So talking about training and talking about goals, for you specifically, what are some of your upcoming goals this season? Make GM this year. Um, and I want to make GM and carry optics and PCC. So, uh, I, I look, I looked at, I mean, cause I'm, I'm master in limited, limited tenant production. I'm closer in those ones right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but the, the, the dots are that that's the way of the future. That's where it's all going. Seeing a pistol without a dot on it in five years is like going to be, is, is going to be like seeing an M4 without a dot on it or some sort of optic. It's just, it's, that's just where it's going. We're, we're iron sights are over. They're, they're, just, they're gone. Yeah, they're a legacy item. People shoot them because it's kind of retro and fun and all that. Yeah, I've got red dots on pistols with 65,000 rounds on. They're more than reliable enough. Like, so that's where it's going. That's where, for me, business-wise, the market is going. And it's more fun. I like shooting red dots more than I like shooting iron sights. And so that's, I want to I want to make GM in that. And I like shooting, I like shooting PCC because I can do all my rifle training on pistol steel at, at like super speed work at short distances. It's cheaper than 5.56. And I don't, I don't have to have that standoff. I don't have to have frangible. I can use whatever steel is available at my club and it's not a problem. So it's like, I get all the rifle training I need out of PCC overwhelmingly, except for distance. If I'm shooting like a rifle match, we're going to, I'm going to have 100 to 400 yard shots. Then I got to go out and shoot, you know, shoot five, five, six. But other than that, I can do everything I need, the visual portion of it, you know, mounting the rifle, all that with, with nine mil. So, so Talking about- to me, it's, it, it absolutely, um, it absolutely has a direct application. To what I, you know, to what I want to achieve overall with with a long rifle, with long gun. So talking about red dots real quick, uh, I know the FBI is already currently transitioning all their special agents over to red dot sites. Um, mm-hmm. How fast do you have you seen, or how fast do you see a lot of your local and state PDs uh, switching over to red dots? 
it's it's really interesting because the ones that it's kind of it's 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 two ends of the spectrum. There are people that that resist it, like they resist it, even though they the data's there, they'll resist it. Your and there are people on the other side that will look at they'll look. I know you know that one. Um, there are people that will look at the different organizations that have fielded it, like right off the bat. Okay, we got red dots now. The LAPD, I believe, just went to them with the five hundred nines, um, and they are looking at they're looking at at they're looking at the enhanced capabilities and the officer survivability and all that stuff. It, it, it enhances the safety and the effectiveness of the officer, especially in low light, where most of the engagements are for law enforcement. On the other side, and I've sat down, I've, I've briefed a couple different um, like sheriffs and chiefs of police and stuff like that about red dots and like why they should be fielding. So yes, like, Hey, can you give my, can you give my chief, uh, you know, uh, a, a talk about like red dots on pistols and why we should have them. And I'll sit there and explain all, you know, targeting and precision and the way it enhances your ability to see precisely at distance and all that. And on, on all of them, I've done it four times now. There've been three people in the room, the chief, uh, a deputy chief slash, you know, bean counter and a dude in board shorts and a t-shirt with a wad of Copenhagen in his left with a beard. And I'm like, okay, so I walk in, it's like, okay, the usual suspects. I sit down, the chief's like, oh, I'm chief so-and-so, or I'm sheriff so-and-so. And I talk to him and he looks at it. When I explain it, he goes, wow, our qualification rates will go way up. The bean counter goes, wow, that's going to double the price of the gun. The dude with the dip in and board shorts and a freaking t-shirt goes, damn, I'll bet that's badass in low light. And I'm like, okay, now I see where everybody's emphasis is. The guy on the ground, okay, the guy delivering is like, wow, I'll be able to shoot better. I'll be more effective in my environment using this tool. The guy that's worried about spreadsheets is going, it's going to double the price of the gun and then the logistics and how we get fixed. And then the guy that's, that's at the top is going, it's going to make my agency look good and, and it's going to increase qualification rates. And that's the problem. If you just look at, at performance, operational performance of the device, there's no reason not to go to red dots. None. There's zero. It's already vetted. My old unit's been using for freaking how many years now? Like 14 years mm-hmm. in combat, it, it, it's it's proven its capability. People are resisting because they just don't want to do it. And then you get people that go up and, and shoot and they suck with a red dot because they don't hold the pistol consistently and they can get away with a sloppy grip with iron sights because you can see the iron sights the whole time that gun's moving and recoil, I can see the iron sights. When the dot's gone, it's gone. So if you hold the pistol like a small child and it runs away from you, then you're like, oh, uh, you know, I, I, I shoot better with iron sights. Like, you know, I think there's, I think there's a lack of, of honesty and, and, you know, humility when it comes to that. Like, it's a new device. I got to learn how to do it. Well, I think we can all agree. A lot of it comes down to people who are making the decisions um, and, and, and coming up with this training aren't fully qualified or fully understand what it is that needs to be achieved. I mean, they, they, they just don't. And it's at all levels, whether it's military, law enforcement, whatever. It's like people making decisions are like. Yeah, uh, I don't see the point of this. No, we're not doing this or, just yet. Or they say, let's get a certain item. Like mm-hmm. my, my thing now, that 6.8 rifle in the military, mm-hmm. that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> You're going to give me a really heavy gun that only has 20 round magazines, that's a, a $3,000 gun, and then you're going to give a guy you know, $8 worth of freaking marksmanship training? Like, great, you can shoot. The gun can shoot at 1,000 yards, but the guy holding it can't. And in a close-in fight, I want a shitload of bullets that I can shoot really fast and a gun that's really light because I'm going to be climbing over walls and running around like a freaking madman. Like, why do I want this giant gun? Like, what do you – like, 
if you're going to do that, field that, field it as a, as a sniper support weapon or take the barrels out of 240s and put 6.8 barrels in because the case head's the same. It won't be anything. M13 links work on the same case. Okay, we can, like, we can easily take 308 out, 7.6251 out and put the new 6.8 in. That wouldn't be that hard and it wouldn't make sense. It's Ballistically, it's a better cartridge. Fielding everybody with a battle rifle that's that big and that heavy and that expensive is to me, it's like you're, you're, you're missing the freaking boat. You, you, you said something that really uh, stuck out to me uh, because it's, it was a lesson I was given back in 2011, 2012 timeframe. I had a gunner, uh, really well-respected guy, uh, but he said, you know, he asked a question. He's like, hey, what's the max effective range of uh, 240? You know, people said he's like, wrong. You know, the max effective range of a 240 is whatever it is in the hands of the person operating it. Mm-hmm. So, Dude, um, shoot, I don't know if... I don't know if you ever got a chance to shoot any um, any deflate fire. I did it in Canada, shooting mm-hmm. deflate fire with a freaking two forty on a on a on a tripod or quad pod. Yeah, like Germans were doing it in World War. Dude, it's an IDF. You're shooting IDF at freaking two thousand meters. Like, well, okay, that's the max effective range now. Like, yeah. again, you like you said, I agree with them one hundred percent. It's the guy behind the gun. That's what the max effective range is driven by. Yep, and we were we were doing uh we we learned how to shoot two hundred threes like a mm-hmm. mortar, like. Yeah. Hey, take a sling, freaking figure out what the dope is, put the put put a line on it, and then that's your range estimation right there. And yeah. you shoot it like a mortar. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's like that's that's again, that's training. You get that the 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 enhanced capabilities when you have that kind of proficiency are unbelievable, but they only come with dedicated focused training that that you know that is repeatable. And it's like but but the uh, back on the kit side, like buying buying a rifle, dude. Take all that money and put it into training. Like buy like get rid of every twenty inch gun. I would get rid of all the fourteen fives. I would have sixteen inch mid length gas guns. Got the best of both worlds. You can still do all kinds of freaking close in stuff with it. You can get in and out of vehicles with it. You got better ballistics. It's a softer shooting gun that's easier on the parts. It's a non NFA item. So I mean, if, if one gets lost or stolen, like I, I just look at it and go like, the, the, I mean, the upper is it's like. It's, it's, it's commercial off the shelf. Everybody's using them. We're just, they're trying to find a widget to take the place of proficiency. You put putting a, a bandaid on, on the problem. Yeah. You put a 16 inch gun on there with a, with a, a you know, a, a, a aim point or an EOTech or, you know, even if you, if you want to go with a one to four or one to six, okay, you want to go with some glass. Got it. That would be, that would be infinitely cheaper than fielding an entire new weapon system, an entire new caliber. Think of all the training that guys could do. It would be unbelievable. The, 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 the enhanced capabilities would be would be unprecedented. But instead, we're going to spend a billion dollars on freaking a new rifle with the same training. Like, I, it'll be maybe enhanced a little bit. I mean, it's like, it, 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 again, we're trying to we're trying to purchase proficiency through equipment. It's like that technology and proficiency are two different things. Proficiency, you know, exploits technology. Technology by itself is like anything times zero is zero. It's a math problem. Like. I just, I don't, I don't see that kind of stuff. And it's back to what you said. The people making the decisions are not, not asking the people on the ground, what do you really need? I mean, I, I could go, like, I've been in, been in, I was in this a long time. I look at saws, 249s. Replacing that 249 with a magazine fed gun was stupid. It was fucking stupid. Thank you. Making the Mark 46 where they welded up the magazine, the magazine hole was stupid because the problem was the feet angle. And I remember in the friggin' 80s, we learned, hey, just pull back on the magazine. If you got to use five, five, six mags, just pull back. It changes the feet or push forward. It changes the feet angle, points it towards the chamber, works perfectly fine. 
Mr. Fuller at Second Ranger Battalion used to machine the feed ramps on them, and they could run magazines without ever touching them on their on the, on the, their saws in, in freaking Second Ranger Battalion. And we shoot those guns, we shoot the receivers out of them, and then we wonder why they dump links inside of it. Like you pass the life of the gun. Like you, you you buckled the receiver. Why do I know this stuff? And the military is like not doing it. Like the saw was a it's a, real, a brand new saw is freaking awesome. Why do why do we replace a, a a baby belt fed gun with a gun that takes magazines? It just doesn't. To me, I, I, you, you can't justify it. I can sit in a room with anybody and argue that because you didn't ask guys on the ground who had a logical opinion based on experience. And it's the same. It's why we train the way we train. It's why we procure the equipment the way we procure. Because the people making the decisions aren't people that shoot or now aren't people with combat experience or have very limited combat experience. And if they were in a combat environment, it was in a managerial position. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to talk to a guy who was a freaking platoon leader, you know, in Fallujah or a company commander in Ramadi. Okay, I want to talk to him when he gets promoted up the chain and he's a colonel or whatever. But I don't want to talk to a guy that, that, that was in some sort of admin job or logistics job. I'm sorry, man, nothing, no offense to you, brother, but like you just don't get it. And we're going to buy things that aren't really usable because it, it theoretically makes sense. And that's, that's training, that's equipment, that's all of it. Yeah, you, you 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 bless my heart with saying that you know the two forty nine is like a you know getting rid of it is the biggest mistake, and I agree. My five foot midget ass, uh, five foot nothing midget ass, uh, you know, carried that saw on my first deployment to Iraq, and it, that was my baby. I loved it. I was good at it. If you know how to operate it, if you know how to maintain it, you know how to clean it, you do everything you need to do. It's going to run for you every single time. Oh yeah. It's a, I'll tell you what, I, I mean, I, when I was out in 05 with, with, I mean, specifically with the Marines and Airborne, dude, those things were money. Those mm-hmm. things were, they were, they are, they are super effective because they're light and you can carry a shitload of ammo. Everybody crossloads, everybody's got a drum on them. Dude, you yep. can run that thing hard. I saw guys carrying, carrying two and three barrels, carrying extra barrels in case we get in it hard, man. I got extra barrels. I got a barrel. My AG's got a barrel or the guy was designated, even though it's not really an AG for a saw. And one of the guys in the squad had an extra barrel. Why? Because why not? It doesn't cost anything. And if you burn up a barrel or something happens, a case gets stuck, some weird shit happens, just throw the barrel in and fucking toss it on the ground. Who cares? But it's like, it's a little baby machine gun and it works good. Like I, I looked at that and said, you replaced it with something that was probably as expensive, but not nearly as effective. To ask, uh, what, what area of Anbar were you in during that time? All like, I was, yeah, so yeah. I spent most of my time between, you know, we were, I was third battalion, second Marines, we were in Alkaim area, mm-hmm. uh, but we jumped over to Al-Assad to run some missions in that area. And then we also went yeah. down to uh, Habania and Haditha and did missions yes. out of there. I was at, uh, let's see, obviously um, Fallujah, Ramadi, Alkaim. I was at KV at Korean Village. Yep. I was in Rupa. I was in the heat. I was in Habania. I was in Iskandaria. Um, I was in uh, where else did we go? That I can think of off the top of my head. Because I was out, I was they would push me out to firm bases. Okay. Um, so I, um, those are the big ones I think off the top of my head. It was fucking seventeen years ago now. But I was all over. That's all that that my my team worked at Anbar. So what we do is figure out who was getting getting beat up by um by IEDs, and we just go out and look at their look at what they were doing. You know. Uh, as far as their TTPs and see if there's something that, something that, you know, any patterns that we were recognized that were problematic with how they, like I, I was with one unit that would kept turning around, they hit the edge of their battle space and they would turn around the same spot every time. I'm like, have you lost your mind? Like there's track marks where you turn around. 
Are you serious? That, that sound like uh, first battalion, seventh marines, maybe. I'm not saying my fucking word. I played the fifth and shit. But yeah, it's like little stuff like that, and it's and it was you know, and, and it was like you'd see stuff, you'd see people do stuff that that you know that didn't make any sense when I was over there. I, I saw some, I saw a part of the military. I saw some amazing, amazing things. Some action, some things that guys did that were like, like you're you're not going to get anything for that, but you should get a valorous award for it because you're just doing your job. But this is a little, you know, you know, watching people run back and forth across fire swept streets, bringing freaking ammo and med supplies back and forth and building the building, like because that particular dude, man, I asked him like, bro, you bucking for a medal of honor or some shit? He's like, yo, man, shit's got to get done. Walked away. Like he's like, it wasn't a thing to him. It's just I'm. This is what we I'm do. I'm doing my job. And it was, just impressive to see it was impressive to see like so yeah i, I but it was it was an experience for me because I, I can't i went right into reconnaissance so I, I never spent a day in the regular military other than when i was when i was cut to like the grunts and stuff like that we did like a cross training thing before a, a float or something like that but other than that i was i, I was i was a recon guy the whole time as a, you know i was an 0311 and then 0321 before it became its own mls mm-hmm. Mike, you mentioned uh, your goals are to make GM carry optics and PCC. Mm-hmm. What does your upcoming match schedule look like? Right now, I'm I'm actually moving. I'm I'm buying a new house and moving, so I got to figure it out. But I'm this winter. I'm going to shoot everything that's temperate, everything that I can shoot without you know above 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So it'll be Utah, um, Nevada, and Arizona. Okay, and then you so, said your your first USPSA match was in San Diego. Was that a power for any by any chance? Was that- was it at Pala by any mm-hmm. chance? Yeah. That's where I yeah. got my start. Yeah. I, I just drove down. It's like I hadn't, I hadn't, I'd shot some in Washington State. I'd shot some in North Carolina. And then um, I went and, and shot that one when, right when I got out, right when I medically retired. And uh, yeah, it was like a little wake up call. And then went back and retooled a little bit. And yeah, got back in on it. I, I just, I enjoyed it. It's fun for me. I mean, aside, it's like, yeah, it's work related for me and stuff like that. And if you're active duty, it's work related there. It's just fun. It's just a good time. It's, it's really, it's my golf, you know? Well, the way I look at it is like, you know, I hated shooting when I was a junior Marine. I absolutely hated it. And I'm a grunt, but there was a reason why I hated it because the way the Marine Corps ran the shit, they made yeah. it in such a regimented way to where it sucked the life out of everything. But, you know, whenever I started shooting three gun back in 2014, it became fun because there were rules in place, but there weren't rules where it was so regimented that it became miserable. So what was once miserable became like this heavenly space for me. Yeah. If they do it, if they run it right, like we had the guys out for the, for a, um, it's called CATSE combat applications training course. We had guys in the 82nd out, we treated them, like fucking grown men. Like we didn't, we weren't, there wasn't all, you know, there wasn't constant ready on the right, ready on the left, rotting everybody. And like everybody was like, Hey man, I used to say it all the time. We give our safety brief and I go, here's the overarching principle. Don't do dumb shit with guns because we'll tune you up. Okay. And everybody knows what dumb shit with guns is. That's like mm-hmm. pointing them at and or discharging them at shit that shouldn't have guns pointed at or discharged at. Don't violate that. And you're cool. If you violate that, you're going to know about it. Okay. We're going to, we're going to fix that. If you make a mistake and we ask you what you did wrong, just go, yeah, I fucked this up. We'll go, okay, cool. Let's not do that again. If you do it again, you can't self-correct. We got a problem. But it's like, we just treated them like freaking, like, like infantrymen, like grown men that are soldiering. And we had no problems with it. We didn't have any issues. We didn't, it's like, but if you constantly dumb that down and you make it miserable, 
and you make it ineffective. And it's like you, it's like, I don't go to, like, I love going to the range, but I hated going to the rifle range in the Marine Corps. It's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. It's a giant pain in the ass. Which like, I got to ask this question to Frank. Frank, what was the first time you actually had fun on a range in the Marine Corps? <laughs> Even with all the bullshit that went down, it's probably at McEast when mm-hmm. I first met. Uh, and, and Mike, uh, for, if you're wondering, Mick McEast is like Marine Corps marksmanship competitions. That's where. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually seen videos of it, which I think is awesome. Yeah. It's pretty so awesome. It's like we treat, we treat the Marines like they're adults that they are. And, you know, we tell them, hey, these are the constraints that you have to operate within. But go out there, come up with a plan. And shoot your game. Yeah, I, I, it's you know, it, there's you can you can create you could easily create a marksmanship culture around that. I believe by having it, there's there's prizes to it, so to speak. Like if nothing else, hey, if you if you shoot this stage on a do it by hit factor. Okay, if you're if you are, you know, seventy five percent of the top shooter, you get a freaking seventy two. You get you know what I mean, like. Like there's something to it. Like, hey, if you work hard, if you if you're kicking ass, guess what? You know, you get you get a freaking 96. You got you got four days off. You got a long weekend. Like something that says, hey, listen, there's a benefit. It's we're not just this is important and all that. We're building a culture where people want they're earning something from it. Like somehow make it, you know, where you do it by by freaking like by squads. Like if you got to have three or four guys from from your your squad go and shoot it. If they if they're the top team, they they have a you know combined score. They're the top team. Everybody in that squad gets his freaking 72. It's Friday off. Like something, somehow, but they, you got to rotate guys in. You can't have the same three guys. Mm-hmm. You got to rotate guys and everybody's got to get a chance. So now everybody has to compete, but they're, you're, 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 you're shooting for the team. You're shooting for our squad. If you yep. guys kick ass, we get, we get Friday off or we get Monday. Like something like that, 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 that is the, like you got to throw some candy in it to bring them in. And then eventually it just becomes a culture. It becomes mm-hmm. a part of the culture. Like I didn't be freaking, if I were the king, I'd be doing that shit. <laughs> I, I think we did we, I think within the team like in those who come out to the Marine Corps marksmanship competitions because I'd say we have a bit of a following now um, mm-hmm. I would say that there's a, a, a constant following of the same names and the same people you see and like you said like uh, that is our culture now those are the people who understand and those are the people who are bringing new people in and I would love, you know, now that, you know, today was my last day going into work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it it's really going to be interesting seeing from the outside now and looking in, you know, that that culture continue to grow. Yeah, that's good to see. That's good. It's because like I remember everybody I remember after the first after the first Gulf War, it's like, oh, we're, we're, we're never going to be in a major ground war again. We're never going to be in the Middle East again. Like, how'd that work out for us? Like, <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, and then they're like, oh, there, there's never be, there's never going to be another big urban fight where there's house to house fighting and stuff. We spent almost the entire time in Iraq doing that. Like, yep. I mean, it's, and, and then you, you look at how events just all of a sudden out of nowhere unfolds. None of us, nobody foresaw two decades of war on two fronts. One was mountainous, was basically mountain warfare, and the other was both urban and desert. Yep. We did everything but jungle. The only thing we didn't have was jungle. <laughs> like, and that's probably coming. So, like, yeah, I, I, it's, it's there's the best time to prepare 
is pre. Like mm-hmm. we got a, we got a lull here. We got a breather. Let's let's like you know get going there, guys. I just I, I just like I said I, I I see that when you're spending time when the decision makers are more concerned about buying a, a rifle that doesn't really apply to the job as opposed to revamping training while we've got we've got time to figure it out. I just I, I don't understand it. I, I don't understand where like the the the, the motivation for that to, to to make the equipment fix knowing we learn in 20 years that the training piece that guys that can think on the ground and can apply the equipment they have really well are unbelievably effective. So I have to ask this then, uh, because it's something that I believe it's something I've noticed over the past, you know, 10 years, um, you know, anytime, you know, since the war, war has kind of started dying down and everything, you know, the automatic response is whenever you go through your advanced school or whatever, you're going back and, you know, the training turns back into con- conventional warfare. And by mm-hmm. conventional warfare, you're, you're back to the basics, World War II style. You know, you're fighting, you know, the Russians or the Chinese, mm-hmm. what, what, what have you. Uh, but the way I kind of look at it is why are we going back to something that we haven't necessarily done since the Korean War? Because we've been fighting unconventionally since the Vietnam War. So why do we keep going back to where we are? And the way I kind of look at it, too, with especially the way we've been using special operations is the unconventional has become the new conventional. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why do we keep backstepping when, rather than pushing forward? Because I think it's historically because it's what people know, and because people people will go that the 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 evaluation template is based on what you grew up on, as opposed to going what are we facing. So people, I mean, I, I remember when it was still the, the Cold War and all that shit, it was the fold of gap and fighting massive Russian armor and all that. You got area denial munitions and stuff. Now you can't you can't mass forces anymore. You get butchered. You want, you want to get you want to get a shitload of tanks. I mean, the only reason that the, that the Russians got to have all those tanks on the road is because they weren't fighting anybody that had had a you know game. That was that was the freaking road to Basra. That was like, I mean, you 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 can't do that anymore. So all of a sudden, it changes the way you fight, and then you look at the, the emerging threats. Like there was there was a complete unwillingness to look at the, the wars that we were in the way they needed to be fought because there was a lot of people, and it's like it's just this is just my un, my unvarnished two cents on it. A lot of guys wanted a battalion command or a division command in combat to put on the freaking on their freaking OER. That's what they wanted. And the bottom line is that should have been a soft specific war with regional QRFs. Think about if you put a freaking battalion of Marines with all the assets, all the armor, all the air, and all they do is fucking work out and do jujitsu and shoot and eat good food. And then when the call comes, they get on helicopters and they go fucking smash targets. Hey, we call we call a QRF. We've been sitting around for seven days. Dudes are itching to go smash stuff. So we go. And it, the, like, if you did that, now you're not you're not using all the assets to occupy the country. You have people out with the local forces doing third nation stuff and all that. Like, it's, you look at it from the the you know counterinsurgency perspective. Having a ton of people in Vietnam didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. It was a shitload of targets, and it was a, a a lot a huge manpower drain and a huge manpower loss that wasn't effective. I know, I know a guy that was there in the '60s. His, he's a really good friend of mine. It was, uh, was uh, um, in third recon with me. His dad was there in '63 as a Marine officer, and he's like, "Don't commit conventional forces. Do not have large-scale conventional forces. The, the special operations community dealing with uh, with the host nation is going to be far more effective. You're just going to make mistakes. You're going to piss people off. You're going to have all kinds of trouble." It's like, but they wanted to fight conventionally. 
historically it wasn't done correctly. And that to me, that's why we fall back on it because it's what, what historically they know. And, and it's easier. Training for a fighting and masked, you know, World War II style fight is way easier than fighting in insurgency. It just is. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask, uh, before, we, uh, before we take off, do you have any, any words of wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with before we go? It's, it's for kind of tagline my company, man. The magic is there is no magic. It's all hard work and you've got to be objective. Look at your skills. If you suck at something, go, man, I suck at this. Work at it. Look at the application of what you're working on. Don't work on things because you think they're cool or because somebody else does them. Look at your own, look at your own requirements or your own needs or your own weaknesses and go towards them. I mean, be a solitary hunter. Just learn, learn how to, how to perfect your own capabilities and then bounce them off of somebody else's, you know, compare them and go, can I do this as good as him? Can I do that as good as him? Okay, got it. But just chasing somebody else's path isn't, isn't there. You got to do the hard work and you got to be honest with yourself. You got to be very objective about who you are and who you're not and then remedy those or accentuate them. But it's, there's, there is no magic to it. It's hard work, man. It's just it's a blue collar thing. Well, I appreciate this. I know Frank appreciates it. This was a very good conversation with a lot of rabbit holes, which were really fun. (laughs) But but thank you. And to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed us. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions for Mike, we'll put his email uh, down in the description. And uh, everybody have a good one.